This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Do you ever stop to wonder where your garden tools came from? Who developed them? The history behind plant and garden trends or techniques? Gardens and garden history are microsms of world history writ large, and every story illuminates the larger course of human history. In her new book, The Compendium of Amazing Gardening Innovations, Abigail Willis highlights 50 important gardening innovations through time. We'll be right back to hear more about them. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The history of gardening is, of course, a parallel, a mirror of sorts to human history itself. It's full of adaptations and evolutions that determined what could and could not happen from that moment forward. Dramatic and amazing twists and turns that moved us in one direction over another. For instance, in 1833, Nathaniel Bagshaw Ward created the first sealed environment in which plants could grow. This one innovation completely changed the way that we humans could move our beloved plants around the globe. And it really upped the ante in terms of the kinds of plants that gardeners could get their hands on no matter where they lived. Abigail Willis is a Royal Horticultural Society qualified gardener and author of The London Garden Book A to Z. She regularly writes about both art and gardens. Her newest book, The Compendium of Amazing Gardening Innovations, and which in the United Kingdom is titled The Remarkable Case of Dr. Ward and Other Amazing Gardening Innovations, is out now. In it, Abigail walks us down the path of gardening history, illuminating for us some 50 highlights, twists and turns of fate that altered the course of gardening from that point forward. From secateurs to seed banks, from hybrid plants to herbaceous borders, these are the ideas that have changed the way we garden today. We find out more about this this week Abigail joins us today via Skype from her home in Somerset to tell us more about this journey and this book. Welcome, Abigail. Hello, Jennifer. So first of all, I'd like to get started by having you describe for listeners your current work in the plant world. What what do you do, Abigail? Well, I'm primarily a writer these days, but I have worked as a gardener in the past and I have my own garden and I tend an allotment. So I am still a practical gardener, but I'm luckily able to concentrate on my own plot these days. And talk a little bit about your um, your garden writing and yeah, talk a little bit about your garden writing. Okay. Well, much like my involvement in gardening, really, it's it's an evolving story, something that's happened gradually and organically, um, appropriately enough. Um, <laughs> so, so this is my second, uh, the, the book of um, the Compendium of Amazing Gardening Innovations is my second gardening book. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first one being about London gardens, as you mentioned mm-hmm. um, in your lovely introduction. So, um, and that both those books uh, grew out of me being becoming very interested in gardening and becoming a gardener and learning how to be a gardener, um, which in turn harks back to you know a childhood interest in gardens, lucky enough uh, to grow up in the countryside and have parents who were interested and keen and knowledgeable gardeners. So it's been a sort of evolving picture, but I started off writing, um, uh, writing about art and uh, museums in London mm. and uh, ceramics and craft and various other things like that. Um, but as my interest in gardening grew, it became clear that I needed to write about gardens mm-hmm. and wanted to. So it was a, a journey of trying to get to that point where you know, that could become a reality in finding the right the right project. Um, and that project was the London Garden Book. And this current book has grown out of that one in turn. Yeah. So, all right, I want to have you go back a little further instead of just glossing over childhood. Tell us a little bit about your earliest influences and what kind of set you up to work towards art and then find yourself moving towards gardening. Well, I think that one of the interesting things about coming on a program like this and having to do a little bit of prep for it is that you 
things that I hadn't really taken on board have mm. become more apparent as I've been thinking about yeah, them. Yeah. So um, I was thinking back to my first childhood garden and realising that that probably had quite a, an influence on me. Mm. It was um, a Victorian house um, in, in, in the West Country uh, with the sort of remnants of a Victorian garden. So there were cold frames still there. There was an old greenhouse which had lovely tiles and a very particular smell I seem to remember now and the garden was obviously once upon a time um, a formal garden there was a, a, a sundial which absolutely fascinated mm. us as children mm. and in the very this is going to date me now but in the very dry summer that we had in 1976 when I was a child obviously all the grass died away and you could see the outlines of um, of old flower beds so um, and there were summer houses in the garden and it was just an, an orchard and it was a lovely place just to sort of be a child and to play. But I obviously was interesting in, interested in gardening at that stage because my parents sort of said, well, why don't you make a little garden of your own? Um, and it was in a little sort of woodland patch. So it was pretty much doomed to failure because it didn't get enough light. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, you know, I think I, you know, I can remember using little stones to mark out beds and, you know, definitely, you know, trying to grow things in it. Um, so I think that was probably... Um, you know, an early influence. Um, and then, you know, you get a bit older and gardening perhaps sort of falls falls to the background and you, you know, you're, you're busy being a young person running around cities and, you know, trying to get a career going. Um, and then the next bit of sort of conscious gardening that I remember was, again, living in London in a, in a shared house. And we, we had, the house had a little garden, which is quite, you know, nice for a London, a London house. And I, again, we had a nice hot summer and I grew an amazing crop of basil, which mm. kept us in pesto the whole summer. <laughs> and that was my first go at sort of growing, growing a crop and, and having that, um, that direct connection with putting a seed in the ground and then making something delicious at the, uh, you know, at the end when you harvest it. So yeah. that was another sort of pivotal moment in becoming a practical gardener. Yeah. And then the next thing was getting my a house of my own, um, moving out of London. It was a, a, a country house, little cottage, had a lovely little garden, which the previous owner had tended very lovingly and had filled with interesting things. And it again was another quite shady garden. So, um, she had put things that were suitable in there. Mm. And when we moved to that house, I just found that I couldn't keep out of the garden. So and that that was really the, the moment I think I thought, gosh, you know, um, this is this is it. Yeah. And so but you there are a couple of things I want to follow up on there. You had gone to study art, perhaps. Is that why That's, you. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I did. I did um, English literature and history of art. And when I um, graduated, I. Well, I didn't really think that any of those things would be very useful to me in a career. But actually, I, I, I did. I worked at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London mm. and, and essentially followed a sort of art historical career for um, for, for a few years, um, working in galleries and doing being re a researcher for for an art historian. And um, and then sort of, yeah, obviously interested in art and museums and galleries and started writing about that and doing sort of reviews and, and things. So um, I hope well, I, I'm interested in aesthetic mm -hmm. uh, things, and obviously, gardening is is um, is a is a part of art history, really. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, I think it has, as I say, it's all evolved gradually. Yeah. Um, it's a great illustration to me of how, if we're going to be garden and plant people, the the gardens and the plants, they will find us where we are. And this is so clearly true of your path that. Um, it started as an influence as a little person and then, you know, you grow and you go in different directions, but it found you there anyway and it pulled you back in, which I just I just love that. The describe for me the sundial that you mentioned in your in your young person garden, your childhood garden. Well, gosh, it's it's uh, yeah, a long time since I've thought about it now. So you're really dredging up some old memories. But it was um, it was it was it wasn't a grand or flashy sundial. I think it was quite a, a simple thing. It was on a you know a little stone plinth, mm -hmm. and it had the Roman numerals. So I think um, as a child, that's quite fascinating. I didn't really understand what they were, right. and we were forever trying to sort of check its accuracy. And I think <laughs> sundials are always slightly out anyway. So it was it was it was quite a mysterious. Um, a mysterious object, um, like lots of things are when you're a child, I suppose that you don't sort of fully understand. But you know, we just it was it was very much a part of the, a part of the garden, and um, it was also covered in little red spiders, which also interested us a yeah. lot. And that right there just is a perfect illustration of what your career has moved into being, because 
of course, the history of sundials is is a whole subset of um, garden history and and human history. And so the different styles of them tell a different, slightly different story. And the fact that you had one in your garden says something very specific about that garden history. Um, and, you know, to even describe a Victorian garden um, or to use that term gets us right into the meat of your of your work. And we're going to get to your current book quite soon. But first, I would like you to tell me a little bit about the London book and how you came to write that one first. Okay. Um, well, that book, uh, again, as I said, I think grew out of a previous book, which um, was uh, or still is actually it's still in print, a, a guidebook to London's museums and galleries. So oh, right. I've I've done many editions of this book over the years. Um, it's in its seventh edition now. So every few years, you know, I go go around, re, you know, revisiting places and a lot of sort of foot slogging around the city, which is a great way to see the city, incidentally. Um, and obviously, you get you know huge amounts of information from museums and galleries mm-hmm. and I, I think I'm a person who loves uh, you know, loves knowledge and finding out about things and uh, quite a few museums in London also have gardens there's a nice sort of intersect mm-hmm. and um, so while I was doing I don't know what what edition of the book um, that coincided I guess with me moving out of London becoming you know interested in gardening getting a gardening qualification and I that's when I began to think mm, I'd love to be able to do something with with what I'm doing already, but perhaps bring some gardens into it. And talking to my publisher, um, they we came up with this idea of doing the London Garden Book. At that stage, it was, wasn't an A to Z. We didn't really know how it was going to, what shape it was going to take. I just knew there were a few, obviously, key gardens that I'd been to that would definitely go in the book. So places like the Chelsea Physic Garden mm-hmm. and Kew Gardens, um, but also museums like the Horniman Museum, which has its own gardens. Um, and um, the Jeffrey Museum, which is a fantastic museum set in an almshouse in East London, which tells the story of the English domestic interior through, you know, over the centuries from Elizabethan times right up to the 21st century. But it also has a garden that tells the story of the English garden through those centuries. So mm-hmm. it's got like an inside-outside museum. So those were sort of, you know, straightaway candidates. And But, you know, that's quite a short list. It's not going to make a book. Um, but as I was going around and doing uh, doing the research and you know, gardens sort of came to me and people would say, oh, we're doing this, and, uh, you know, come and have a look at this garden. Um, and then there were open London squares weekends. So I went to that and you sort of, it just sort of began to snowball. And suddenly it became clear that actually London was a hotbed of gardening activity. <laughs> it, it really is. Yeah. You know, be it, be it very, you know, formal historic gardens or just people on, literally on their street thinking I'm going to make, you know, this uh, tree pit where the street trees are planted. I'm going to make that into a little garden. And then their neighbor saying, well, I'm going to do that too. And then before you know it, you've got a whole street that has become you know a a garden Mm -hmm. so it was a really lovely book to do because I met some fantastic people and some you know people who were really gardening in quite tricky situations you know surrounded by concrete and not very much space or not even any space of their own but slightly you know adopting uh, gray areas of the city shall we say and making them into gardens so um, that was a a, a fun book to to do so um, and what year was that book published Abigail? Well, again, that's gone into two editions, which Good. has been lovely. Um, so the first edition came out in 2012. And then off the back of that, again, you know, in that uh, after doing that, it uh, more more gardens came to light. So the second edition came out um, four years later, 2016. And do you know by chance off the top of your head, what is the old, the date of the oldest garden in that in in the collection? Well, I would imagine that the um, the Chelsea Physic Garden mm-hmm. is probably one of the oldest. But in fact, I've just I think the oldest might be Westminster College Garden. So that is the garden that's attached to Westminster Abbey, mm-hmm. the original monastic garden. So which is um, a cloister and then another space. So I think that is pretty old. And Temple Garden, um, the inner Temple Garden, which is mentioned in Shakespeare, is also a very old garden. But obviously, it's, you know, it's it's evolved over the years. It's not. Um, you know, like visiting right. a medieval garden, but the space itself is is a historic one. So, but the Chelsea Physic Garden is home to, I think, the world's or certainly this country's oldest rock garden. Mm-hmm. So there are some there are some pretty historic gardens there. And then, what would be the newest ones? Would just be five, ten years old. Yes, I mean the, the the book has a section called Meet the Gardeners, which takes you out of the sort of grand public sphere into literally 
ordinary people's back gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, although they're not ordinary people, they're all amazing gardeners. And those are gardens that generally open for the National Garden Scheme, which is, mm-hmm. um, I don't know whether you have an equivalent in America, but it's people who open their gardens to raise money for charity. Yeah. And it's become quite an institution here and a great, you know, brilliant part of the British summer going around and, you yeah. know, you can visit all sorts of gardens all across the country. Um, but London gardens are, of course, very surprising because people don't expect gardens, particularly um, uh, in, in, in London, but it is a very green city. So uh, those are wonderful uh, to visit. And the, the people who, who have sort of picked out for that particular section, um, you know, were very generously opened their garden to me. And um, they were some of the, those gardens to works in progress. Yeah. And that, I think, is a is a great combination to maybe have the London Garden Book and the National Garden Scheme book for the year, the yellow book. Uh, it was yellow when I was there. It, and still and still is yellow. Okay, good. And <laughs> um, But that would be sort of a nice companion, almost a, like a guidebook. Um, not a guidebook, but like a like a museum, you know, um, where you, they give you the little headset and you walk around the museum and yes, it interprets yeah. it for you uh, and, and helps a little bit with the interpretation to go with the the garden visiting scheme. And we do have something similar here. It is not anything like as culturally widely embraced, but we have the um, the Garden Conservancy Open Day program, which is all over the country. Um, we just are big. We're big space. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with Abigail Willis, author most recently of The Compendium of Amazing Gardening Innovations. We'll be right back after a break to hear more about Abigail's gardening and writing journey story. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. I do realize I want you to know that I'm on a run of garden book interviews in these weeks leading up to the winter holidays. And just wait, because next week is an entire roundtable discussion and fabulous guests on their favorite garden books to recommend this year. I'm really excited for you to hear it. The series of garden books was not entirely conscious other than the book roundup next week, because trust me, I do know the garden book habit can be hard on the wallet and the bookshelf space. But here's what I figure, friends. There are a lot of books on the market, and to get even a small insight into which might resonate with you can help to determine which you really want to own and which you can just enjoy learning from through a conversation about them. And where we spend our money matters, on what and for whom. I'd rather inadvertently encourage you to invest in a good garden book than just about anything else in the world, except your garden itself. Someone else can encourage you to spend money on unnecessary plastic objects for your children and home and car and wardrobe. My goal is as ever to write you the permission slip that says, go outside and play and love and revel and revere. Your garden and your gardening impulse are valuable. They are among your highest expressions of what it is to be a caring, engaged human. Don't forget, if you follow the IndieBound links to buy books you're interested in through the episode notes each week at cultivatingplace.com, you support independent booksellers, you contribute a fair price to authors, and you support Cultivating Place. Also a quick reminder that this is the last week for the holiday special offer from Woman's Work to Cultivating Place listeners. Now through December 3rd only, get 10% off your entire order of the best garden gloves and other great garden gear and gifts when you enter the code WW10 at checkout from womanswork.com. That's W-O-M-A-N-S work.com. And shipping is free in the lower 48 states for orders over $40. For every order you place with this code, WW10 at checkout, a generous donation will be sent to Cultivating Place in support of the program. And every dollar of this is now going to campfire support in my region. Last year, every woman, and man and child in my family received gloves, lotions, and t-shirts, and they all love them. Again, 
go to womanswork.com and use the code WW10 at checkout to get 10% off and to help support Cultivating Place. Now, back to our conversation on garden innovations and adaptations that have changed the way we garden with Abigail Willis. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Abigail Willis is a gardener and writer. She's been writing about art, museums, gardens, and history for many years. It was while writing about the amazing range and history of gardens, both public and private, for the London Garden Book A to Z, first published in 2012 and now in its second edition, that Abigail got the idea for her newest book, The Compendium of Gardening Innovations, out now from Lawrence King Press. In the compendium, which in the United Kingdom is titled The Remarkable Case of Dr. Ward and Other Amazing Gardening Innovations, Abigail walks us through 50 important, tangible, and conceptual innovations in gardening history that changed the way we garden. She describes it as a potted history, as it were, of everyday things we take for granted in our gardening lives, from secateurs to seed banks to paradise gardens, which is one of my favorite entries in the book. Of paradise gardens, Abigail writes, from its foundation in the seventh century, where Islam led, gardens followed. From Persia to the Mughal Empire, from the Ottoman Empire to North Africa, and from there to Al-Andalus in Spain and on into Mexico and California, the Islamic garden became one of the most widespread and influential garden types in the world. We're back now to hear more about gardening innovations and influences throughout history with Abigail Willis. Welcome back. One of the really interesting things for gardeners and even non-gardeners, just historians and visitors, is how much history is integrated into the layers of all of these gardens, whether it's the very, very old ones like Chelsea Physic. Um, but even if it's not the exact same as it was when it first started, each layer tells us something different about history, about our relationship with plants, about how we view almost everything. It's such an interesting lens to me. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, the the new your new book, The Compendium, is so fun and illuminating. It's it's not a massive encyclopedia of everything that ever happened in garden history around the globe. It's quite a slight book, but each one of its entries gives you this lovely little cross-section that opens up a whole discussion and um, different sort of meta-layers of what is happening in the world and and what our cultural consciousnesses might be at any given moment. Yes, I mean, that was one of the, the difficulties of writing the book, really. It's, mm. it's 50 entries, 50 different ideas that, you know, uh, influence garden history. Um, and they're, they're necessarily, they're, they're, they're quite pithy entries. Um, and so it was really, a, they're distillations of a lot of information. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So not everything, I mean, a lot of lovely facts and mm -hmm. stuff that I'd found out just had to be jettisoned, which is, you know, always painful oh. for a writer, but yeah. probably ultimately makes for a much better experience for the reader because it is, <laughs> it is just, you know, it's a manageable amount. But as you say, it is, it's, it's quite a rich, um, uh, subject matter because even in quite a short entry that it could go in so many different ways mm -hmm. and hopefully that that's what will happen it will take readers off into different areas and they yeah. might follow those leads and you know uh, explore the wider um ideas around th those core principles right so walk us through that trajectory you're you're in the middle so so that you you do this gallery index and that leads to this very natural association with the gardens and then the garden uh the the london garden book you know starts and grows and becomes this thing you hadn't completely envisioned in the beginning. How then, like, where was there a little spark that said, wait, this would be a really interesting book next? 
Yeah. Where does that start? Well, it, it starts with the London uh, the London Garden Book because mm-hmm. of those historic gardens that I mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, and also um, looking at some of the areas of London, so Hoxton and Hackney and uh, South Kensington, areas now which are just part of the city, but once upon a time were kind of gardening hotbeds, you know, full with nurseries and market gardens. Um, there's a chapter in uh, the London Garden book about market gardens because mm. London used to be fed from a very kind of uh, uh, small radius around the city. You know, there, it, the soil is fantastic around there, the alluvial Thames Valley. And um, so I was, uh, that's been, there's been quite a resurgence of people growing now closer to home. So it, part of all the interest in organic food and, you know, where provenance where our food comes from mm-hmm. uh, so there's a chapter about that but also I did a chapter called lost gardens which are gardens that no longer exist mm-hmm. things like Foxhall Pleasure Gardens mm-hmm. and John Evelyn's Garden and um, Lodge's Nursery so three sort of quite key gardens which no longer exist but which have had a huge um, resonance for modern gardeners um, if they but knew it so that mm-hmm. that was the I think the, the, the germ of the idea oh. and then um, taking it to to my publisher Lawrence King um, with a much bigger idea, actually, it was, it was the original conception because they were doing a series of books called A Hundred Ideas That Changed oh, Architecture, yeah. Fashion. Mm-hmm. You, you mm-hmm. may have come across them. Mm-hmm. So I, I just thought, gosh, this, this would work so well for gardening. You know, it's such a rich source of innovation mm-hmm. over the centuries. And again, you know, these ideas evolve and we, we, we talked about it and discussed it. And then, um, you know, uh, essentially a, a horticultural technique was applied. It was pruned. It was pruned <laughs> down to 50 ideas, which um, suited me just fine um, because I think some of the, looking at the list that I sent originally, a lot of those ideas were part of other ideas. You know, mm-hmm. it was very difficult to to pin down which was the, the kernel of that, uh, of, of the idea that really was the changing moment, as it were. Mm-hmm. So um, by by, by condensing it, I think it made it stronger. Um, but there are still a few, you know, it's, it's a subjective list, ultimately, the 50 that went into the book. So, you know, again, as, as a, perhaps a, a topic for debate because people will disagree, I'm sure, with some of my choices. But they were things that I want, was interested in, in exploring. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the publishers let, let me explore what I wanted to do. So that was that was very nice. So, all right. So then get us into how did you, you know, your own interests notwithstanding, how did you come to arrive at these 50? And, and maybe we could go through a couple. Um, I'm going to make noise right now. Okay. okay. I will do the same. So we have uh, the the introduction. And then even just looking down the table of contents, it becomes clear that there are some very tangible invention style moments where you have you know, the Wardian case, you have secateurs, you have um, a couple of other ones. But then you also have these very more conceptual ideas like Zen gardens or garden rooms, um, even organic gardening. And how did you come to arrive at this particular mix of elements? And, um, And then let's walk through a couple of them. Okay, so the mix again is, as I say, it, it's a personal mix. As a mm-hmm. hands hands on gardener myself, I was interested in the, 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 those technical aspects. You know, my secretaires, which I just love. I I think I'm a sort of hairdresser monkey. I love just snipping things and cutting things <laughs> back into shape. So, um, I was interested in in finding out a bit more about the evolution of that for me quite crucial tool in the garden, and. Obviously, living in in Britain, lo- the lawn is such a part of our garden culture now, but it hasn't always been. So how did that happen? I was interested in just exploring some of those ideas that um, we totally take for granted, that gardeners maybe don't give a second thought to. You know, why mm-hmm. do we have a herbaceous border? Mm-hmm. Why do we, um, you know, uh, grow our vegetables in a particular way? Um, why do we have so many plants at our disposal from around the world? How did they get here in the first place? Um, so it was a, a mix of all those things and also the, you know, the aesthetic, the, the, the historical styles. I was interested in exploring those because there's a real um, ebb and flow over the centuries of, of how we have 
liked our gardens mm-hmm. to look and be. Mm-hmm. And I guess they they reflect a, a, a zeitgeist, you know, the inward looking medieval gardens, the outward looking 18th century gardens. And that's sort of drawing back um, an eclecticism of the 19th century and then the much more domestic focus of the arts and crafts garden in the 20th century. Um, I think all those things work work really well together. Um, along with the nitty gritty of, you know, why, where we get our seeds from or why we can just go to a garden centre now and just fill up on all the plants that we like all through the year. Mm-hmm. How, has, how has that come about? Mm-hmm. So um, I was interested, I suppose, in reflecting all sorts of different elements of, of horticulture as a whole and hopefully put together as a whole, you know, to make something with a bit of texture and interest. Yeah. And and I should say uh, right from the start that it's definitely from the perspective of a uh, a Western, um, primarily white kind of you know colonial base that a lot of a lot of these tendencies are viewed like it's very uh, it feels very British or American um, centric in its perspective, but that in and of itself I think is a fascinating lens. Um, it's just you know it's a lens like any lens is. Um, what were your most um, Give us an example of something you might have turned in in your original idea list that then got whittled down or, or pruned down to its most essential kernel and, and what that is in the book now. Give us one of those descriptions. Oh, gosh. Well, that's a, that's a, that is a tricky one, really. Um, I'm just having a look through some of my original original list um, of, of, um, of ideas and thinking, well, um, yeah, I just, it's, it, it is a tricky one um, mm-hmm. because, uh, well, things like um, gardening in small areas, I was interested in that. So I had a, I'd um, looked at window box gardening mm-hmm. again, very, you know, very from a very English perspective, um, because, you know, they developed in the 18th century with the invention of sash windows and um, Thomas Fairchild um, was the person who promoted that. But that was just just too specific. So that just kind of went. But I do have something about container gardening in the in the book now, which is mm-hmm. looking at the sort of broader um, mm-hmm. uh, idea of, of, of containers and textile materials uh, used to make them. And um, and then just some some ideas were just too nebulous, but some were some technical advances, not hardware, but things like rootstocks, mm-hmm. um, uh, fruit tree rootstocks and things and why, how they were developed and, um, and micro propagation and things like that. But I just thought those were probably, they are very um, important innovations, but maybe just too sort of too specific, mm-hmm. uh, too technical uh, for, 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 for the general reader. Um, yeah. So. And what were, what were your biggest surprises as you as you came along like did you have moments that you remember where you were like oh that happened and so that means this um yes it was um there were well there were some nice surprises along the way i was intrigued by um the chapter i did on uh, garden magazines because Mm -hmm. obviously that the the idea of mass um mass publication and people people being able to subscribe to magazines and those the, the railway networks and that's again a, a very you know a victorian innovation um but i was intrigued as to how they had developed from being um quite connoisseurial type publications mm-hmm. but very quickly became you know quite um quite a competitive field with everyone wanting to get their little slice of the pie whether it's the practical gardeners or the connoisseurs or the the um the the, the middle class hobby gardeners or the working class florists um with their sort of very specific focus on pla- on plants that they were raising for for competition so that was that was just a an unknown world to me mm-hmm. when I started researching it. So yeah. it, that, you know, lots of interesting characters, you know, these, these um, uh, quite sort of uh, driven Victorian gentlemen generally, but also, you know, some ladies in there as well who were, you know, pioneering writing uh, mm-hmm. for women, women gardeners. Yeah. And that in itself was an interesting subject to explore. And there is a chapter on, on women gardeners and how um, gardening has become an increasingly female um, occupation and some very influential um, women gardeners you know, emerging from the 19th century through to the 20th century and then through to today. So, yeah. um, 
Yeah, it was, uh, uh, you know, I covered a lot of ground. The research was sprawling and enormous it and it must was hard have work. Been, yes. <laughs> and the editing process must have been like cutting off arms to fit something into a box. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. In Abigail Willis's newest book, The Compendium of Amazing Gardening Innovations, she gives us the distilled history of some of our most relied upon garden tools and resources, such as secateurs or clippers, seed banks, and gardening magazines. Of our favorite hand tools, our secateurs or hand clippers as we call them in the United States, Abigail notes that they were allegedly inspired by the French guillotine, used to behead people. Hand clippers were invented by French aristocrat Marquis Bertrand de Molleville around 1815. His device appropriately proved equally adept at deadheading, (laughs) get it, and precision pruning. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's me. Toward the middle of our conversation, Abigail mentions her chapter in the London Garden book A to Z on lost gardens. That phrase really stood out to me. Right now, the concept of lost gardens is very, very poignant, raw even, for me and my region. As a result of the recent California fires, with close to 14,000 human homes lost, there were many, many gardens lost as well. Gardens, of course, are dynamic, living constructs and creations. They were never meant to be set in stone. And yet, to lose one, especially in such a way, is a devastating blow. A painful loss of a friend and a companion, a counselor and a confidant. A friend of John's, a kitchen and home designer, Mary Wanzer, wrote to him recently, post-fire. She knows 110 families who lost their homes. She had helped to craft many of these homes, and in her email she said, Other people can say it's just a house, but I know differently. All the homes with their special owners, where I had the opportunity to come into their lives, to dream with and create with, are so important to my heart, and the homes feel irreplaceable, even as much as we are told houses are replaceable. Something about this acknowledgement was very moving to me, and I would add gardens to the mix. Each garden is more than a place, It is more than something we can simply regrow. Our gardens hold our memories and our dreams. They embody and make manifest our past, our present, and our future. The traumas and the achievements, the everyday activities no matter how mundane, picking up dog poop, squishing aphids on the roses you cut to bring inside, all of these actions make us us. In the region burned by the campfire, several nurseries, including the oldest one in our area, Mendens, owned by successive generations and renowned in these parts, and at least three very active garden clubs and master gardener groups, as well as a bigger handful of plant and floral societies were affected by these fires. Many beloved gardens were lost. They might seem like the last thing someone would think of as important. There are not likely to be insurance claim form line items for garden clippers, watering cans, garden books, container gardens. But we garden people know differently. For some of us, our gardens are who we are. It's what nurtures our spirits and is a springboard from our best selves to the larger work we're called to do in this world. We need to grieve our gardens when we lose them. We will remember them and hold them dear, still, even as new gardens might be germinating in their places. Now, back to our conversation with Abigail. The 
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're speaking today with writer and gardener Abigail Willis from her home studio in Somerset, England, about her newest book, The Compendium of Amazing Gardening Innovations. The book is beautifully illustrated with detailed and evocative pen and ink line drawings for each entry. Make sure to check out this week's episode notes at cultivatingplace.com to see some of my favorite of these illustrations, including the giant gnome and the Wardian case. They're fabulous. We're back now with Abigail to hear more about the book. Welcome back. It is a beautiful and um, small but mighty insight into the history and layers of many of these things. For instance, the the whole chapter on the Wardian case. Now, in the United Kingdom, the book is titled uh, "The Remarkable Case of Doctor Ward and Other Amazing Garden Inf- Gardening Innovations." So, the Wardian case really is the first chapter in the book, and it, mm-hmm. it, I think it is the key absolutely key invention um, that changed horticulture um, because as you alluded in in your introduction it suddenly opened up tremendous possibilities for transporting plants around the world um, from either taking plants from the west to eastern new world and vice versa so it was the start of a a huge um, plant trade but also it was you know very much associated with colonialism and and empire and um, using you know, botanics, botanical goods to, um, you know, create wealth and, and, and forge empires. So it's a, it's a very interesting and pivotal uh, innovation. Now, without wanting to issue a spoiler alert, describe why that is so. Like give us a little, give, give listeners an abstract into this because that, you know, when I first got the book and started reading it, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this is sort of fun. This is sort of interesting. And then I was in that chapter going, wow, okay, because it, it you really do reach this point where you're like, that is that is the foundation for so much of what came after. And it's kind of true in every one of the chapters, but this first chapter really hooks you. So describe why this was so important and, Yeah. Well, so it's important because um, up until Dr. Ward invented his case or um, invented it and co-developed it with Lodge's nursery, um, plants and plant matter was sea transport was how things you know got around, mm-hmm. and um, being the age of sail, things took a very long time to get anywhere, and um, plants when they were being transported were subjected to a very hostile environment on mm-hmm. deck, so very extreme variants of of, um, of temperature and salt water and obviously very limited uh, fresh water um, which um, was one of the causes of the uh, mutiny on the bounty um, it was so the breadfruit plants being transported that um, you know they they was a sort of tussle over who took priority on mm-hmm. water um, so plants had a pretty dismal um, a chance of of um, arriving in you know any sort of healthy condition. Obviously, seeds could be transported, and that was that was no problem. So, um, Dr. Ward's case enabling live specimens to last for months at sea and arrive in perfect condition really just was a game changer. Um, so, um, plants suddenly a whole new palette of plants was was um, was possible for gardeners, mm-hmm. but also crop. Uh, different crops were transported around the world. So the you know tea, tea plants being taken from China to India started um, the tea industry there, the rubber industry, right. um, quinine production. So these big crops, are, are coffee um, as well. Um, that was not just the uh, the British doing that. The Dutch and the French were um, all the sort of colonial powers were busy sort of transporting these right. um, plants. Um, and then. The thing about the Wardian case is that looking at that subject can take you off into so many different mm-hmm. uh, areas. So botanic gardens, um, colonial powers would set up botanic gardens in sort of outposts, little islands or wherever, you know, staging posts en route. And those, you know, survive to this day. And botanic gardens is a, a subject in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Obviously, 
the Wardian case enabled plant hunters to go out and, yeah. you know, collect samples and bring their samples back. Again, that's a, a chapter in its own right. The tremendous tales of daring do and um, bravery and foolhardery sometimes uh, of people going to very distant and inhospitable places to, you know, gather plant samples and send them back um, to plant collectors and nurseries, um, you know, around and about. So um, it's a, it's a, a very rich subject matter. Mm -hmm. But I mean, what I was interested in is that um, Dr. Ward was a medical doctor uh, who was a, a natural history sort of um, addict, really, and loved growing growing ferns. And he discovered the, this the, the way that the case worked by when he was trying to raise a little uh, a moth in an enclosed glass jar, and the moth succeeded in pupating, and um, uh, as did several little seeds and spores. So that was the start of it all, really. Mm. And Dr. Ward originally thought that his invention would be good for um, the sort of urban poor who were at that stage living in very smoggy and polluted environments in London. And he thought they would be able to grow veg crops inside these cases and, mm -hmm. you know, and help feed themselves. So it was, it was incredibly um, forward looking. Um, and it's it's strange the way that it's actually sort of turned out. Right, right. Um, yeah, because it blew wide open economies of scale around the entire globe with with plants and people, and you know. And there's the downside of this. There's the the introduction of invasive species. There is the oppression and taking advantage of people and natural resources around the world. But it is what happened, and it is a fascinating. It's a it's a fascinating window into this. So, yeah. I was going to say it's, it's sort of like the internet, really, the yeah. internet of the horticulture. You know, uh -huh. that the effects were that profound and mm -hmm. long. You know, the ramifications are so you know, so big. Yeah, yeah. So, when you now, you know, a year after actually getting the book written, and then it gets published a year later, and you were researching for three years before that, or however many, it, it's some time now. Yeah, no, you're, you're not far off. Right. I think it did take yeah. a <laughs> and, and so looking back from this distance, Abigail, and, and starting to get the book out into the world and talk about it, why, what, what is important about this to you in a, in a more broad, universal sense as both a hands-on gardener but also a historian? Well, I think having a historical perspective is always useful for the present. I think it just illuminates what you're doing in the, in the present. And I think it's nice to be aware of those sort of resonances and you're in a sort of context. Mm -hmm. um, so I hope I hope that's what people will get out of it and be just intrigued really by the stories um, uh, that are in the book. And, um, you know, I think it will hopefully be yeah illuminating yeah. and i love i love for people to say gosh i never knew that yeah. and you found that you found that for them and hopefully they'll be you know as i say take that on and perhaps you know be interested in finding out other stuff so um i think that when you're writing it it is it is about communication so hopefully a successful communication is one that um or people enjoy and 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 learn from at the same time yeah yeah it makes uh every plant every tool in the garden and every kind of garden, an entire education in itself. Yes, yeah, I think it will give people some more insight in as they're gardening, mm -hmm. um, why why things are there, why even the way that we're cultivating, um, uh, um, most many gardeners I know and myself included try to be organic, why Why is that? Well, you know, if you, you start delving into the history of chemical gardening, then mm. um, that sort of becomes clear, but there are also sort of new innovations as well, um, types of no get, no dig gardening and forest gardening and uh, permaculture and all these these new ideas or not so new ideas, but right. um, different different ways of you know of doing things. And and actually, one of the things I I, I think is there's probably no such thing as a, a you know a new mm -hmm. idea. It's <laughs> quite a lot of reinvention and yes. uh, new different generations taking on things in a slightly different way and reinventing it for 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 the time that they're living in. So. Um, yeah, we're, we're just part of a continuum. And I think that's what's clear when you, yeah. you know, when you're doing a book like this. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I really enjoyed speaking with you and I am really enjoying the book. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. It's been such fun talking to you. Thank you. 
Abigail Willis is a gardener and writer. Her books include The London Garden Book A to Z and, most recently, The Compendium of Amazing Gardening Innovations, in which she walks us down the path of gardening history, illuminating some 50 highlights, from secateurs to seed banks, from hybrid plants to herbaceous borders, that altered the course of gardening from that point forward. She is based in Somerset, England. Adaptation and Innovation the theme of Abigail Willis's book, are ideas I've been thinking a lot about these past few weeks. In light of, and in the wake of, the campfire here in Northern California. This fire, the deadliest wildland fire in California history, has left our region sort of stunned. Blackened, scoured, laid bare. Most of us are still numb, and only time will tell when that might lighten up. That life does in fact go on, in all its forms and faces, is both horribly cruel and incredibly reliable. Every cliché you can think of comes to mind and irritatingly fits. The smoke clears, the sun rises, tomorrow is another day, life goes on. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get on with it. It's almost absurd how unrelenting life can be in its single-minded drive to, well, to live, through its very capacity for innovation and adaptation. 87 human lives lost to date, almost 14,000 human homes destroyed, and 154,000 acres burned before the fire was contained after two and a half weeks. Somewhere, entangled in the crazy overwhelming and messy complexity of these numbers used to scale the tragedy, life is already asserting itself, human and non-human alike. In fact, life was asserting itself in the dizzying array of innovation and adaptation quite dramatically in the very midst of the fire. From the nearly 5,000 brave and kind first responders and the many, many volunteers working to comfort, shelter, clothe, feed, and orient the displaced. To the communities and individuals who resolutely prepared and fled, prepared and stayed, prepared again and are slowly going back in to what was lost and what remains. And now in the aftermath, it's the many forms of innovation and adaptation that intrigues me. In people, in plants, in animals, in soil. How do you clean a burned home site? How do you rebuild a bridge, a water system, a town, a forest or riparian ecosystem? From the fungi already busy at work in the wood debris after just under three inches of rain here this past week, to the ants and gophers rapacious, almost zealous, in the charred soft ground of the nearby oak woodland, life itself is answering these questions. It doesn't make me feel better, per se, nor should it for right now, but still, it is. We've been walking the burnt oak woodlands near my house for the past few weeks since the fire moved further eastward before being contained. Everywhere, the path of the fire is visible, and we try to read it, to sift through what we read for understanding. From the white ash impressions of wood that burned long and hot, to the faster jet-black searing across the dry, dry grass meadows and open understories, you can see where the fire went up, went over, lingered here, missed there altogether. You can also follow the path of the people who were working to direct the fire away from my neighborhood on the eastern outskirts of my town. The rough, choppy path of bulldozer crews working the perimeter of this woodland meadow tells a human narrative of urgent and rough strategy, where to place a break in the fuel, where to light a backfire to burn fuel in front of the fire and stop its progress in a specific direction, of people working all night to think like a fire and one step ahead, of innovation and adaptation in the moment. Beneath the blackened grass residue, the soil is a deep nutmeg color for now. And just like human homes, there are those trees, home to myriad life, valley oaks and blue oaks and live oaks that are downed completely in place, slumped and fallen, while others are partially intact and others still 
standing tall. The landscape's fire color palette ranges across an eerie ashen gray, shades of black to a deeper than normal brown, indicating a more superficial singe from which the trees and shrubs will likely recover. The understory shrubs tell similar stories of the fire's whims, those red buds and coffee berries that defoliated, but the shrubby stems of which are still green and lively in their pith. There are expanses of silvery buckeye forming elegant thickets. These had little foliage in their summer dormancy before the fire, and with the heat of the fire, they dropped all of their hefty nut-brown seeds in place. But these thickets seemed to withstand the flames and heat that clearly went right beneath them. Why, you find yourself wondering, why did that gray pine not burst into flames as one of the most flammable of our trees? Why did this oak go and that one not? And how did the acorn woodpeckers, the bush tits, and the towhees fare? The Pacific chorus frogs, the lizards, the snakes, the bumblebee queens already in hibernation after the heat of summer. John worries about these bumblebee queens as we walk, hoping for the survival of them and their return in just a few months to lay their broods when the not-burned manzanitas open their bell-like blooms across the lower foothills. As we walked the post-fire meadow the other evening, we intermittently examined ash, stood beneath tree canopies, followed a deer trail here, a bulldozer path there. We bent down a few times to salvage small succulent native bulbs, Dicolostemma maybe, Tritilea, Brodeas, thrown above ground by the deep cuts of the bulldozer. And we pick up healthy, plump acorns lying in abundance beneath trees the shape and resilience of which speak to genetics we'd like to help propagate. We see a bat sweep quietly over us. We hear a pygmy owl calling out, good night, from a stand of trees nearby. A cluster of oaks that remain, their foliage turning a warm bronze late autumn, early winter color right on time fire or no fire. These trees envelop the owl into their branches, and we imagine they envelop as well a whole host of other birds and insects, amphibians and more. Many, and perhaps all, refugees from the fires in the neighboring trees. The oaks, the owls, the bulbs, us. We do adapt and innovate. We move over, we make way, we make room. We get up, albeit slowly and sadly at times, and we start again. We say goodnight, and then, if we can, in whatever our way, we say good morning not so long after. I've written this before. Fire is not new or foreign to the people and landscapes of California, and much of our native landscapes have co-evolved to live and even thrive with fire as an integral part of the normal, healthy cycle of things. But these are not normal times and these are not normal fires. More often than not throughout the West in the past decade, like much of the extreme weather conditions affecting our entire globe, much of the fire we see today is climate change-fueled extreme fire, contributed to by a wide variety of human missteps, misunderstandings, and unintentional mismanagement. Innovation, adaptation, and opportunism gone really wrong. These these are exactly the times when we as gardeners, nature lovers, and advocates need to continue to coordinate and collaborate. We need to deepen and expand our questions, our listening, our learning, our individual and collective understanding and advocacy. We need to continue to grow together in order to continue to grow the gardens, large and small, natural and cultivated, figurative and literal, those standing and those lost, that we all love and find inspiration, solace, and hope in. These are agonizing and yet teachable moments for us all. My fervent prayer is that our resounding capacity for innovation and adaptation works with our learning and creates results 
for the better for us all. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To make your tax-deductible contribution of support to Cultivating Place, follow the support links at the top right-hand corner of any page at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you to everyone who makes this program possible. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our engineer is Sky Schofield. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To read more about and see many photos from Abigail Willis's work, head to this week's full episode notes at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.